This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello, and welcome to the Scholarly Podcast. My name is Dr. Stephanie Maximus, and I am a clinician educator at the University of Pittsburgh. And today I will be discussing this new published manuscript, a prospective trial of in-house overnight critical care fellow coverage, impact on education, well-being, and patient safety with our guest, Dr. Christian Swab Jensen. Dr. Jensen is an assistant clinical professor in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at UCLA, where she co-directs the post-ICU recovery clinic, as well as directs their pulmonary rehab program, as well as serves as an associate program director for their internal medicine residency program. So thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today, Dr. Schwab Jensen. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I uh, am a big podcast fan, and I've actually never been on a podcast before, so this is very exciting. Yeah, there's a first for for everything. I think podcasts are a cool, uh, it's a cool medium, and I think a lot of people consume them at different points in their in their day, so it's a cool way to kind of keep up on the literature, and we're lucky to have one that talks directly about medical education in our field, too. So this is a cool paper that I was really excited to highlight just from my own personal interest and also because I'm not aware of other other studies that have looked at this particular question. So as a way of background, while we have data that there's no significant impact of in-house attending coverage on patient mortality in academic ICUs, it sounds like we don't really know the impact of what an in-house fellow on both patient care and education would be. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about kind of the backstory of how this question came up for you and your co-investigators. What motivated you to dig into this and design this study? Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it was kind of surprising to us too at the outset because uh, really when we were looking at this question, part of kind of st- figuring out how to restructure some, some of our fellow rotations, we, we realized that there weren't really any studies immediately apparent that look at fellow overnight staffing in the ICU. You know, I think about, you know, five to 10 years ago or so, there was kind of a flurry of studies looking at attending staffing models in the ICU, the most notable of which was the New England Journal study from 2013 by Nita Curlin that that really showed that uh, in-house attending staffing in an academic ICU didn't lead to differences in patient mortality. And and there's been a, a bunch of other kind of similar studies, both before and after that, looking at attendings in particular. But but when we wanted to look at the fellow staffing question, there there really wasn't anything that that we could find off the bat. And in many ways, I think it's interesting because fellows occupy this this middle ground in many ways, where from a financial standpoint, of course, it's it's favorable to have a fellow in house overnight because it's a lot cheaper than an attending. Uh, but then also from I think an approachability and educational standpoint for house staff, there may also be an advantage to having a fellow as opposed to an attending as their kind of supervisor overnight in the ICU. So it seems like a really interesting area or opportunity to study, which made us really excited about this project. Yeah. And whenever we think about ICU staffing, there's so many stakeholders involved, right? Like let alone patients, staff, 
you know, clinical staff, bedside nurses and therapists. And then of course, in the academic setting, the various levels of learner and the, the attending faculty member, like, was there a particular group where you had this, the question really originated from? Like, were you thinking about it mostly about the impact on the residents, the impact on the fellows, the patient outcomes that sort of sparked the initial question? Yeah, absolutely. So it came about during my time as a chief fellow for the fellowship. And we were kind of fielding some feedback from my co-fellows who were kind of finding that the home call model oftentimes ended up being quite exhausting where you were fielding calls frequently throughout the night and didn't really get the good kind of well-rested sleep that that I think would be desirable when you're on a day ICU rotation. And, and then we also kind of on the other side of the coin we're getting a lot of feedback from the residency where there was a desire from the residents to have increased supervision in an ICU that was, you know, seemingly getting sicker and sicker and busier and busier. And so it kind of came about from, from in many ways, the, the stakeholders of, of both of those sides and, and seems like a potentially favorable solution for both the residents as well as the fellows. Yeah, it sounds like, yeah, of course, it makes sense that it would affect both groups of people and both groups stood to gain and potentially to lose something in that. So I think it's a really, I can imagine coming at it with a sense of like true equanimity and like not knowing like what would come out of, out of the study. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you went about designing the survey that you, that, you know, was the gen, the general most important part of the study like was there was there an investigator who is the expert in survey design kind of like where did the questions come from and who was involved in your research team yeah absolutely so when we were kind of figuring out how to how to implement a potential fellow in-house or fellow in-house overnight staffing model we we figured since there wasn't as much kind of data in the literature to suggest it, we we figured we might as well kind of do the staffing model and then also study it. And we we decided to start first with a survey-based study, thinking that kind of more of the hard outcomes measures could come kind of later on down the line. And so so we designed this survey, really trying to think about the the various stakeholders and what would be important from their perspectives for, for perspectives for us to look at. And so we spoke upfront with a lot of kind of the residency leadership, a lot of the fellowship leadership to make sure that we were asking the relevant questions. I'm not an expert in survey design, and we we wanted to be very thoughtful and humble about that. And so actually, after we kind of designed the first and second iterations of the survey, we had an external expert in survey design review it and give us feedback. And then kind of once we came up with our final draft of the survey, we piloted it out with residents and fellows and attendings to make sure that the questions read clearly and were non-ambiguous or without kind of other areas of concern, just to make sure that we were designing this off the bat, asking the questions that would get us the, the answers to this question. Was it hard to come up with the kind of questions as a group, like, or were there, was there a lot of overlap amongst all the folks who were invested in asking these questions? Yeah, we, we knew that we, we wanted to look at kind of perception of patient safety. I think that's kind of the 
one of the kind of biggest quality measures that everyone always kind of cares about with this. But then we thought that equally important and perhaps what a survey could could better get at even would be kind of the the educational impact of this as well as kind of the impact on wellness and burnout and job satisfaction. And so I think we ultimately decided to not choose one of those kind of three different aims and really integrate all three of those into into the survey and kind of use this as a hypothesis generating study that could then kind of open the door for kind of future investigations into all three of those realms. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. So it sounds like the main domains that you were getting at were impact on patient safety, well-being of both sets of trainees, and including burnout, and the educational component, both, again, for the fellow and the residents. Cool. Um, and how complex was it to actually coordinate this new alternating schedule as you were doing the the study, of course, when you commit to, you know, anytime a, a training program commits to changing the schedule, usually you, you fully commit to changing the schedule, the whole thing turns over. But in this case, you were going back and forth in order to um, be able to have a control. Yeah, it fortunately, because we, we made the schedule before the start of the new academic year, we were able to kind of sketch it out pretty seamlessly where there would be because the fellows rotate every two weeks, there would be one week or one rotation that had an in-house fellow the next where it wouldn't. And so we were just able to alternate that throughout the year. And we we fortunately had buy-in from all the fellows as well as the fellow leadership, which which made it much easier to implement as I, you know, a shout out to our fellows. They're they're really an exceptional group and everyone was was very excited to to be part of this project. And it, maybe just for our listeners who may be less familiar with the, the details from the paper itself, maybe you can tell us a little bit about how, how the study was structured and how the schedule kind of shook out for the fellows and the residents and maybe how their job descriptions changed on the two, in the two different ways that they rotated through. Right. So we were comparing kind of our traditional or the previous kind of staffing model we had for overnight supervision in the ICU with this new in-house fellow staffing. And so before this study, the way it had worked was there was an on-call fellow who took call from home. So the residents who were in the ho- in the hospital would kind of admit patients, run evening rounds, rounds through the unit, and kind of manage everything with the supervision of a fellow that they could contact over the phone. And this fellow, if there was any procedure or decompensating patient or any reason for them to kind of have to go into the hospital, the expectation, of course, was that they would. And so so the fellows were fielding calls from home, but frequently going into the hospital overnight if needed. And then, of course, also discussing any further questions with their attending physician. And so that was kind of the traditional model. We alternated that with this new in-house model where there was actually a fellow in-house for for that night shift from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. And kind of with the, the guidance that this fellow would be present on the evening rounds, they would also kind of run any new admission or the residents would run any new admission through them once they had evaluated and come up with a plan 
also kind of as additional parts of their job as the in-house fellow. They, of course, were doing any procedures that came up overnight. They were coming and going to Code Blue events. And then also we wanted to kind of make sure that an educational component was, was part of that rotation as well. And so with the expectation that these in-house fellows would also, whenever a possible provide some didactics for the for the residents overnight. And so we alternated kind of a two-week rotation with an in-house fellow with a two-week rotation with that traditional home call fellow model and did that from the start of the study, which was September through around March. And so about six months of, of data um, alternating these two models. Did you find that it was much more challenging from a, just from a scheduling and like human bodies perspective of your fellows to actually be able to put them on the night in-house call or it was okay for your program? Yeah, that fortunately didn't end up being too big of a logistical challenge. We had enough kind of fellows and flexibility within the fellowship schedule, especially kind of during the second and third years of fellowship to, to be able to integrate this in pretty seamlessly. Yeah, that's great. I'm, I imagine that that would probably be a question for, for programs that might be thinking, okay, what if I wanted to implement this? How could I do it? So it sounds like it was at least able to work within, within your program's number of people. And when during the weeks when there was no in-house fellow and you had your fellows taking their home call, who was responsible for supervising residents on procedures if they did need help or with airways and plural procedures that may be outside of the scope of an internal medicine resident? Yeah, so there's an anesthesiologist who's in-house who could handle any of the emergent airways overnight. And then beyond that, for any procedures, so central lines, arterial lines, Thora's other kind of plural procedures, that would be the home fellow coming in to, to do those if, if it was deemed to be emergently necessary overnight. Okay, so it sounds like they were probably coming in a decent amount from home. They were. That was one aspect that we didn't directly study and I think probably would have been nice to have gotten hard data about how much or how frequently during the home call rotations were fellows coming in, but it seems kind of speaking with people and kind of anecdotally looking into it, maybe about once or twice a week would, would the fellows on home call be coming in to do something like that overnight. Mm -hmm. And then on an average night, also fielding a number of calls throughout the night from the, from the house staff who are physically in the building. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And so let's get to the, let's get to the meat of it. Tell us your major findings for these three big domains. What, what sort of takeaways most resonated for you and, and should we sort of make our education community aware of? Yeah. So really across the board, residents, fellows, and attendings seem to prefer this in-house fellow staffing model. So looking within first the domain of patient care and patient safety, residents strongly felt that having an in-house fellow improved patient care and patient safety with over 80% of the residents saying that they felt that this in-house fellow either positively or very positively impacted patient care. The fellows also agreed with that. They Interestingly, it was about, I think, 68% of fellows who felt that it improved patient safety as compared to the high 80th percentiles of attendings and residents who felt that it improved patient safety. I think 
you know, either these fellows aren't giving themselves enough credit or they're kind of feeling perhaps like the home fellows could do a similarly good job, but but still, you know, the minority of people feeling that it didn't resoundingly improve patient care. I think in terms of the well-being and job satisfaction domain, well over 70% and actually closer to 80% of residents felt that it improved their well-being and job satisfaction to have an in-house fellow. And then interestingly, and a little surprisingly to us, over 70% of the fellows also felt that it improved their well-being to have this in-house fellow model. Over half of the fellows also felt that it improved their job satisfaction. And so, so the fact that it wasn't just favored by the residents, which was kind of our hypothesis, but also favored by the fellows, I thought was was pretty noteworthy. And then in terms of resident education, residents felt like this was a, a very helpful addition to their education. 82% felt that it positively impacted their education. And then importantly, only about 20% felt that it negatively impacted autonomy. And the autonomy aspect was, was one that we were really interested in looking at as well, because we I think one concern we had from the get-go with this in-house fellow was, was that it might kind of detract from resident autonomy and, and learning kind of by extension. And so the fact that the minority with only 20% of people of residents feeling like it did kind of negatively impact their autonomy was, was important. From kind of the fellow education standpoint, fellows were a little less effusive about its benefit on their education. Still 41% felt that it had a positive impact on their education and 32% said that it had no impact. And so still the majority either thought it had no impact or a benefit and at least wasn't a negative on their education, which I think is important when thinking about from kind of the fellowship program director's side of things, whether this is kind of a useful rotation to add to fellowship training. Yeah, so so much in there. I mean, the things that stood out to me, some of it was surprising. Like the the part about the well-being of fellows improving was totally out of left field for me. Any hypotheses for why they would say that? You know, we're asking them to come in, stay in the hospital. We're probably not going to sleep because they're probably going to get involved with more things, you know, in real life than if they were at home. Any ideas for like why the fellow would say that it improved their well-being to be in-house? Yeah, I think it, it really speaks to the benefit to the day fellow probably more than anything. And so I think for that day ICU fellow, the benefit of kind of going home and knowing that you're when you're off, you're off and, and kind of this shift work model kind of definitely seemed to supersede the the negative of having to do this in-house rotation once or twice a year. Of course, this is also assuming that an overnight rotation is is a negative, which I think is is a um, is a fair assumption for most of us where we don't we don't prefer to to work kind of an overnight shift in the hospital. but but I think really just speaks to the the benefit of when when you're on, you're on and when you're off, you're off and 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 what that can do for for trainees. Yeah. And I wonder too, you know, I think it's hard to get at this, but you know, the the ownership that ends up being felt too by the in-house fellow. And maybe maybe they come to their shift perhaps even more energized because they actually were sleeping during the day. So they can, you know, even though they're like, oh, I have to be in the hospital, like these are my patients now for these nights. Maybe there's Absolutely. just a little bit more of that as well. So offloading your day fellow and then also kind of giving your night fellow that ability to 
step into it from a different perspective, maybe a more well-rested perspective and feel like this is my shift now. Yeah. And I think we, along those lines, really tried to frame it as this is your time to function as a junior attending and to kind of see what it's like when you don't have an attending right in the hospital with you. And so how are you going to manage these kind of new ICU admissions who, who may be very complex? And how also are you going to tailor the education and and the the procedures and triaging and prioritizing all of that when there's less staff and less people, less hands on deck overnight. So yeah. I think for, for some of the, and we had this as kind of one of the senior fellow rotations. And so only second and third years did this in-house fellow rotation. And I think it was in many ways a nice kind of stepping board for them as they, as they thought about more merging or morphing into this attending role down the line. Yeah. For sure. It's a different, it's a different role. I mean, they're not patients that you maybe know in depth coming off of, you know, if you're the day fellow, you rounded on them, you've been following them for days potentially, but if you're picking them up at night, you have to you know synthesize a lot of data in a really short period of time in order to make decisions and kind of move the plan forward. And I think that's a different skill set than, than for example, being called about a patient that you already know about in the middle of the night and kind of troubleshooting. So that's a good point that it's, it's definitely something that needs a different, yeah, maybe level of of skill and decision-making to kind of put it all together and make decisions on the fly. And, the, you know, one of the other surprising things to me was that piece about the residents not feeling like their autonomy was compromised. Was there any particular, you know, instruction that was given to the fellows in order to balance that out? Or did that just organically happen? And we're excited about it. I don't know if you have thoughts on it after the fact. Yeah, we were really concerned that residents would feel that this was getting in the way of their kind of independent decision making and their kind of time overnight to kind of shine as that like senior person. And so, so we did try to be fairly thoughtful about the, the kind of expectations and the plan for what, what the fellow kind of would, would do overnight. And and so we kind of off the bat kind of provided guidance that still, you know, the residents would be the first people independently evaluating the patients coming up independently with their own differential and plan. And, and then kind of after they had formulated that, that plan and kind of had their own clinical reasoning, then presenting it to the fellow and kind of having that fellow kind of as a supervisor later on. And and so I think that to me, this suggests that in-house fellow coverage can be thoughtfully designed so that residents are still getting that first pass to evaluate patients, the first pass to make those medical decisions, and then have that autonomy piece. And then just with the added benefit of now having a supervisor around that they can bounce ideas off of before they actually implement those decisions. But but yeah, that was one of the, the most surprising. And I think one of my favorite parts of the study was just that it didn't end up being a negative from that standpoint for, for residents in their learning. Yeah, and the, and the general feeling also that patient care was hopefully better or patient safety potentially, at least subjectively, to all of the various parties. I was thinking it would have been cool to know the nurse's impression regarding patient safety. Like, I I always feel like they probably know best about, you know, when things are getting missed and versus, you know, a patient being really 
cautiously managed. And I wonder about their perspective on how patient safety changed with the impact of having the fellows there at night versus not. Yeah, and we we actually, I, I should say, we also did survey nurses. We just didn't end up including that data because we weren't able to get a big enough sample of nurses to, to feel that it really was kind of as comprehensive a, a, a study group as as needed to, to publish, but but the nurses were probably the most enthusiastic about loving this and and feeling that you know patient care and patient safety was really advanced and just the plan of care for patients kind of what being able to be advanced during mm-hmm. a night shift. And so mm-hmm. um, the nurses off the bat were probably the biggest champions of mm-hmm. having in-house fellows and and seemed to really appreciate it for what it's worth. Oh yeah. The nurses always know the true story. So (laughs) yes, that makes sense to me. (laughs) And I, I'm so curious too about this burnout question. So you had one kind of explicit question in your survey that was to get at the, the question around burnout. And you point out that burnout amongst fellows did increase over the time of your study. But my, as if I understand it correctly, we don't have a baseline sort of to know, well, how much does burnout increase amongst fellows just kind of naturally over the course of the year, regardless of what call structure they're in? Do you want to say a little bit more about that and how you sort of interpret your data around burnout? Yeah, we we wanted to make sure to incorporate a burnout question just because we felt and feel that this is just such an important problem in training with health staff having disproportionately high rates of burnout compared to other professions. And because of this really thought that if there was kind of signals towards improved wellness and job satisfaction, that perhaps that would also kind of track with with changes in in burnout. And so, and and we knew that this study didn't have the kind of capability of, of saying any kind of broad overarching or making any broader overarching conclusions about burnout in general, but wanted to kind of start the conversation by including at least, you know, a couple of questions looking directly at that. And, and so we did find that, that kind of the burnout rates in residents and fellows seem to kind of track what is reported generally in the literature. And then for fellows, we had kind of asked the kind of level of burnout at the beginning of the study in September, and then also kind of the end of the study in March and and did find that the rates increased, but, but really thought that there were so many other kind of confounding factors, kind of as you mentioned with the increase in burnout that I think we all kind of see happen during the winter months and as kind of the academic year goes on, which is when the second surveys were done. And also, I think for for this study in particular, that second survey was done right at the start of COVID when there was such a unique time for morale and kind of just general general stress, I think, for all of us. And so because of that, we really felt that there were all these other kind of external factors that really probably confounded the kind of change in burnout over time. And so didn't didn't feel that we could make compelling, you know, comments about burnout over time in the fellows. Sure. Yeah. Interestingly, the the residents, on the other hand, their burnout was ameliorated by the presence of the in-house fellow. Any thoughts on why that might be? Yeah, I I think that it probably is is just due to the fact that being overnight alone in the ICU can be so stressful for young trainees. You know, I remember back when I was a resident and 
feeling this huge burden on my shoulders when I was in the ICU as a senior resident and just wanting to make sure that all of your decisions were the right decisions and that, you know, nothing, nothing unexpected happened overnight. And, and this was me as someone who wanted to go into ICU. And so I, I think that for all residents, being on the ICU is just such a high charged and high stress environment. And so I think that then the reassurance of knowing that there's someone you can go to who's physically there and can kind of physically be there with you can be such a, a benefit and kind of allaying some of that, that angst. And so I think that there's that. And then I think also just the added camaraderie of having an additional person overnight. Sometimes I think it it does feel a bit isolating when you're there in the in the hospital overnight. And so just having more people to to kind of talk with and bond with and share that experience with can be really beneficial too. Yeah, I mean, I think you touch on a really important point that so much of medical education in the clinical space is not only about the, you know, the didactic and the feedback on the presentation and the procedural training, but also the the team dynamic and the, you know, the support and the synergy within within teams that leave you with that warm, fuzzy feeling of <laughs> I'm learning and I'm growing as a physician and I'm getting these, you know, crucial experiences, especially in a place like the ICU at night. I think for probably most trainees, those are, it's a memorable time and potentially anxiety provoking, or, you know, there are a lot of kind of emotional memories wrapped up in it. And I suspect having a more senior trainee or, or person that was perceived as support must hold a lot of value that's hard to pin down and maybe give a name to. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious then, you know, on the flip side of that, there were 9% of fellows who reported a negative impact on their well-being. Do we know anything about that group? I realize it's a small number because the the overall N is small, but do we, do you have a sense of, you know, what made then the, you know, all these other things about in-house calls seem great. What may have been a detractor for this crew? Yeah, so so we did de-identify the data before we analyzed it. So we didn't, because of that, get at all the kind of potential demographic granularity, such as you know whether someone you know may have had kids or or even you know like gender or age to to see if there was a specific cohort or group of fellows that that felt that it was negatively impacting their well-being. So so unfortunately because of that data de-identification we don't have too much of the kind of granularity about who who didn't like it but but yeah it was I think reassuring in a way that it was only nine percent and so still you know 80 or 91 percent of fellows felt that it that it was actually a positive uh, which sure. was much higher than I expected. <laughs> yeah, for sure. When you originally undertook this study, were you approaching the were you planning to approach the results such that if things were, you know, wildly positive, you were going to imp- like truly implement this in your program and if they were wildly negative, you were going to keep the current home in home model? Is that were you going to use the data from this study to like actually change your program scheduling? We were, and that's actually what we did. And so now because of this um, and kind of the positive um, response from 
from the fellows as well as residents and attendings, but really mostly the fellows, I think, were the people that we, whose voice we cared about the most in terms of deciding if this was going to be here to stay or not. And so when, when we did find that the fellows preferred this, we now have, have kept that night rotation and now have it every, every week of the year as, as part of the ICU. Great. Yeah, you're not planning to resurvey them. <laughs> now this is the now this is the program. <laughs> is there anything else that you wish you could have asked on the survey? Now knowing all this data, do you feel like there are any gaps that you still have remaining questions on? Yeah, it's it's a great question. I I think that there there certainly are so many more provocative questions that could have been asked. I one that jumps in my mind is if residents would prefer having fellows or attendings in house because I think there's perhaps mm. an argument to saying that that the fellow is really like the best of every world where they're the, from the approachability standpoint and the camaraderie standpoint maybe that's that's preferred even to having in house attendings. And then I guess, you know, as kind of from a bigger bird's eye view, as a survey-based study, we really focused on more kind of subjective outcomes. And so, you know, the this wasn't actually patient safety, but perception of patient safety. And and so while we, you know, high, we did find that perception of patient safety or perception of patient care and advancement of care overnight was improved, we don't have the hard outcomes of did, was that actually the case? And was it not just this perception? And so I think moving forward, I would, I would love to look at kind of the harder data and the actual patient outcomes, really looking at how actual patient care metrics improve or change during these two time periods. And there's, you know, been studies looking at, as we talked about kind of mortality with in-house attending staffing, but I wonder about other outcomes that that might not just be mortality. And so maybe ICU length of stay would be improved with an in-house fellow or attending, or maybe bundle compliance with, you know, sepsis bundle compliance or low tidal volume ventilation or DVT prophylaxis. There's so many things that perhaps from kind of a quality of care side of things, perhaps maybe maybe improved that when you just look at hard and fast mortality numbers might not be reflected. And so I think moving forward, those kind of get going beyond just the survey to seeing kind of the, the hard and actual patient data outcomes would be really interesting to look at. Yeah. And also it would be so interesting if our, uh, if all of our program staffing models were actually rooted in something that was like as tangible as, as patient outcomes, although it would be very challenging to actually get to the root of it. But that's, yeah, that's so cool. I have, you know, I, I feel very positively about fellows in-house call because I was a product, I'm a product of in-house fellow call and we do that in our program where I am now. And so it, for me, was very reassuring to see this data because it just, it makes me feel, okay, like all these again, sort of emotional feelings that I have towards my own personal training and the learning of, of our fellows around us is enhanced by this staffing model. And we believe that it also is, is a, a good staffing model for patients where it is possible to do. And I, again, I recognize that there are some programs that this would probably be out of reach for them, or there are other considerations that make it not possible based on other demands that they have on their 
within their fellowship, of course, but it was, it was neat to see something that was lending evidence to the way that we do things in, in fellowship training and resident, and also that positively impact residents, certainly. So I was, I was grateful to see this study. For you as an educator, were there any big kind of like takeaways or things that you learned just in terms of running a study or crafting the survey or something from the, you know, the, yeah, the education research side of things that you take away from it and that we can kind of leave our listeners with? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And I think a lot of these kind of education-based studies, that's so important to, to think about and reflect back on. I think for survey-based research, my kind of biggest takeaway is just the most important part is making sure that the survey is really well designed and and thoughtfully thoughtfully created and and so really taking your time with with developing that survey off the bat you know at the outset of starting any study there's so much momentum and there's such a temptation i think to just create your survey and get started with the project but really taking a step back and thinking thoughtfully about you know what question you want to ask and how are these questions going to even, you know, thinking about what the result table is going to look like and making sure that the question is getting you to be able to answer that, that question in a way that, that you can present and thoughtfully conclude, make conclusions from is so important because once you send out that survey, you can't change it. And so if there's ambiguous questions or something that, that you realize should have been asked a different way, you, you can't really change that. And so just taking that pause up front and really making sure that you've, you've had multiple people look through it, I think is so important. And I think that would be my biggest takeaway from a kind of med-ed research standpoint. For That's really study. great advice. Yeah. As someone who in an earlier phase did not fully understand the complexity of survey design and did that exactly what you're saying, made that mistake of being too enthusiastic and move forward with a project based on a survey that didn't make a ton of sense. I can definitely co-sign that, <laughs> that advice because when you make your survey really well, really make a lot of sense at the beginning and really clear for what you're out thinking about what your outcomes are before you make your survey, it just makes your life not only so much easier, but you get to actually answer the question that you set out to ask. So I think that that's, yeah, that's really sage, sage advice to take away from it. And I think your, your survey did allow you to answer those questions. So well done. Thank you. Yeah, cool. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Schwab Jensen. It was wonderful chatting with you today. Um, and thank you to all of our listeners for tuning into this week's episode of Scholarly. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. To listen to more episodes and see show notes from today's discussion, you can visit our webpage at atsjournals.org backslash scholarly. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.